Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Throughout the centuries, Judaism has always wrestled with our commitment to hold fast to tradition while adapting to the ever-changing world through which we wandered. And for about 300 years, Judaism has had to adapt to the new truths and ideals that emerged from what we call the Enlightenment. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson captured that new ethos when he wrote these immortal words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, you don't need to call a truth self-evident unless it isn't really self-evident. And in 1776, the idea that all humanity was created equal was still a fundamentally new idea in the Western world. And that spawned another new idea, which meant that Jews too were created equal. Thus, the Enlightenment invited Jews to leave the ghetto and participate in the larger cultural worlds that surrounded them. In order for Judaism to integrate into the larger world, a new movement was born. Its name was its mission, Reform. Their question was simple, profound, threatening, and inspiring. How could Judaism, its law and lore and practice, be reformed to address the new truths the modern world had uncovered? How would Judaism synthesize teachings of Torah and tradition with the advent of scientific thought and understanding, the recognition of an individual's intrinsic infinite worth, and the human freedoms that recognition inspired for speech, thought, and religious conscience, along with the ideas and ideals of democracy. Reform Judaism proved a brilliant and vibrant answer to that question, but our world is changing rapidly. The energy and vitality of Reform Judaism seems to be waning. Whereas 30 years ago, 73% of American Jews claimed affiliation with Reform or Conservative Judaism, in 2020 that number had dropped to 54%. More than a third of young Jews now identify as just Jewish. And so we ask today an essential question. How can a recharged Reformed Judaism bring the richness of Jewish wisdom and spiritual practice to meet the questions of the emerging digital age and help and inspire us to find the answers to our essential questions? My guest today, Rabbi Ami Hirsch, is among the leaders of those in our movement who are trying to answer these questions. Rabbi Ami Hirsch is the senior rabbi of Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York City, and he has had an extraordinary path. The son of Rabbi Richard and Bella Hirsch of Blessed Memory, who were the pioneers of the creation of the Religious Action Center for Reformed Judaism in Washington, D.C., and moving the World Union for Progressive Judaism to Jerusalem. His new book, The Lilac Tree, Rabbi Hirsch looks at life and death, science and faith, political activism, and deep learning and all through the particularity of our Jewish lens. Rabbi Ami Hirsch, welcome to Essential Questions. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, and you and I have been friends for decades now, so it's an honor to spend some time together. Well, Ami, I have admired you and your rabbinate and what you've contributed to the Jewish people and been in just tremendous respect of what you've created in your synagogue at Stephen Wise in New York. But, you know, as I've had the privilege of getting to know you and your illustrious parents of blessed memory, 
Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in the house of Bella and Dick Hirsch in Washington and then later in Israel. What were the influences on them that helped shape you as a Reformed Jew? That's a great question and a very uh, deep question. I could talk about that for uh, an hour. I, you know, when I look back at all of this, I think my parents, as you know, my parents, uh, my mother died uh, four years ago. My father passed away about two years ago. And I've uh, been spending a lot of time reflecting on their lives. And when I look back on their lives, it's almost like a snapshot of the Jewish experience of the 20th century. My mother uh, escaped the fate uh, that uh, condemned almost her entire family in uh, Poland because of a quirk that her father happened to leave Lodz in the 1930s for Russia. That's what saved my mother, as opposed to all of the other members of, practically all of the other members of her family. So uh, they ended up in Stalinist Russia in the Ural Mountains. It cost my grandfather his life because Stalin was paranoid, and especially paranoid about Jews, and especially paranoid about Polish Jews, swept up all of those uh, people who originally come from, came from Poland and uh, executed them. Uh, so it eventually uh, cost my uh, grandfather his life, and I never met him. But that, ironically, is what saved my mother and what allowed me and my three siblings to be born. Because uh, my mother, even though th there was harsh, harsh starvation during the war, uh, they did manage in some way to, uh, which is not really clear to me uh, and, or to her, how she managed to do it. She survived. And all of her siblings survived, and they ended up in pre-state Israel in Palestine. My mother arrived from Bergen-Belsen, which was then a DP camp after the war, and ended up on the first boat that arrived in the newly proclaimed state of Israel after the day after uh, Independence Day. So, you know, and then uh, she uh, eventually met my father in the United States six years later. My father... Uh, was an American uh, Jew who, you know, along with other all the other American Jews, uh, didn't personally experience uh, the Holocaust, but obviously was uh, tremendously affected by it. My father was especially attracted to uh, the fact that my mother was an Israeli. He was running a uh, summer camp for uh, reform youth at the time. He hired my mother sight unseen because he heard that uh, there was an Israeli nurse that was going to come uh, and uh, and spend the summer, and at the time it was in Denver, and six weeks later, <laughs> literally two weeks after camp finished, they were married. Their love story you know, we, is, we, we, is epic. <laughs> it, it's really epic, I, you know, and I never really appreciated it until after they died, and their story is the story of the Jews of the 20th century, and it informed so much of what I became. One, my father was a Zionist even before he met my mother. He was. He fell in love with the idea of my mother even before he saw my mother and fell in love with her, uh, who by then was an Israeli. You know, and that and one thing led to another. And uh, the two great reform initiatives of the second half of the 20th century really centered around our household. One, my father was the founding director of the Religious Action Center in Washington D.C., which is the reform movement, social justice. Arm. And he, he, they founded the center in uh, the early 60s, right as the civil rights struggle was exploding in the United States. So it was the most exciting time to be an intimate 
colleague of Martin Luther King and all of the civil rights uh, activists. So my father was involved, was one of those few people who charted the direction of North American Reformed Jews in terms of social justice that still is with us today, 60 years later. And, as you know, he also, in 1973, moved all of us to Israel and established the world headquarters of the reform movement in Jerusalem. And everything that we see now in Israel, almost everything that we see, transpired from that decision uh, to move the international headquarters. And so he really helped to chart and led the reform movement's Zionist activities over the last 50 years as well. And so both of those huge, dynamic initiatives of the reform movement that in many respects has defined us now in the 21st century, uh, my father was intimately involved in. My mother's life story was about that, and uh, therefore uh, much of that uh, seeped into all four of their children. Uh, I'm the only one who eventually uh, devoted my life professionally to, to the Jewish community as a rabbi. My other three siblings are all medical doctors, which is what my mother would have been had uh, she been born in a different part of the 20th century in a different place. And so growing up part of your life in Washington, D.C., in a home that spoke Hebrew, despite living in uh, suburban Washington, and then growing up the rest of your youth in Israel, and then eventually joining the IDF and serving in tank corps, Tell me sort of how here you have a legendary reform Jewish leader. At the same time, there's deep, deep Zionism and appreciation for the broader Jewish world that's constantly a part of your home. And you have your own experience of absorbing American and Israeli Judaic Zionist culture. It's such an extraordinary recipe for your own being in your own soul, how did those experiences blend together to create your own unique view uh, and creation of what Reform Judaism is in the life that you lead? You know, now that you mention it, it's really true. Those experiences really did shape much of uh, what I became. We did speak Hebrew at home. Uh, We understood Hebrew. But when we moved to Israel in 1973, I was 14 years old. You know, my my Hebrew was elementary, it was basic. It wasn't teenage uh, high school Israeli Hebrew. And they kind of just parachuted us into high school in Israel. And and in the 1970s, high school in Israel, the Israelis were really, really tough, tough, tough people, teenagers. And there were very few immigrants uh, in the early 70s. (laughs) They kind of just threw us in, and it was literally an almost sink or swim type uh, situation. Within a year and a half, I had become so fluent in Hebrew and so Israeli that uh, I was invited onto a radio show, kind of like the Israeli version of To Tell the Truth, if you remember that show, you know, three sure, of course. Tr- questioning three guests, and one of them has a secret. And our secret, I invited two of my friends from high school, and, one, and our secret was, who's the new immigrant? And this was a year and a half after I had arrived in Israel. None of the panelists guessed that I was a new immigrant. To that extent, I had just become completely Israeli, more Israeli than the Israelis, if you can understand what I mean. And so that, you know, I was only in Israel for seven years, four years of high school and three years in the military. I was drafted like everybody else and 
served in the tank unit in the armored corps. I was a tank commander. But those seven years, you know, they were they were to use a biblical term, they were years of plenty. You know, they were the fat years. They lasted for a lifetime for me. They inde- made an indelible imprint on my personality and my worldview that basically shaped me and I'm still living those values, one, of the centrality of the state of Israel, which in turn rests upon our theological concept of the centrality of the Jewish people to social justice, giving back to the world, caring about uh, society, what we call colloquially in the reform movement, tikkun olam, which of course is also a concept that's rooted in Jewish tradition from the very first words of uh, the Jewish tradition, where where God says to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves through you and you shall be a blessing. Those two factors, tikkun olam and klal Yisrael, repair of the world, universal values rooted in the particular Jewish experience, is the essence for me of, uh, of what uh, Judaism can give to the world and to our own people. And and those two dynamics were instilled in, in me at a very young age. I should say one more thing. My father, and he passed this on to me, never never saw a contradiction as some do today and some did in the past in the history of the reform movement. He never saw a contradiction between social justice and Jewish particularism, Jewish universal values and Jewish particulars. So how did uh, they your were never dad... contradictory. They were always complementary in his eyes. And I know that that blending is really crucial to your own rabbin and, and to the Judaism that you teach. How do you blend those two different commitments in your sort of your own unique Jewish life and in what you teach you know, as the director of ARTSA for so many years, the Association of Reform Zionists of America, and your pulpit work at Stephen Wise. In in some ways, you know, Ami, you have grown a reputation for your eloquence in some ways because you were kind of an outlier, that there is this sort of blended passion for social justice and for Zionism that you don't always see. Part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is because I think that that blending is crucial. Tell me how that gets blended in you not just by what your father and your mother taught you, but by the evolution of your own belief. Well, this is what, this, of course, these two themes are paramount, fundamental, and a central component of uh, Judaism. They were from the very beginning. If you take out the Jewish universal impulse of concern for the world, you have something that is not Jewish. It's a diminished Judaism. On the other hand, if you simply have universal concerns, which are not rooted in Jewish particularism, in the experience of the Jewish people and loyalty to fellow Jews, then you also have something that is not Jewish. It's, it's not Jewish universalism. It's just universalism. It's more Kant than Kiddoshim. Okay. So the trick is to blend both. Now, that's easier to do in Israel. Because in Israel, everything revolves around common Jewish experience, the collective Jewish experience, and and the struggle, and it's still a struggle to create a safe state, let alone a uh, model state. In the diaspora, there's always been a strain in liberal Judaism of 
prioritizing universal values, not as a reflection of Jewish particularism, but at the expense of Jewish particularism, that in some way caring about the Jewish people, this theological concept of Jewish peoplehood is in some way less advanced and less enlightened than modern Western universalism, which was the essence of the Reform Revolution in North America. Uh, it took us uh, 50 to 70 years to overcome that and to restore this exquisite, unique blend between universalism and particularism that is present in Judaism from the very beginning. It's in the balance between the two that Judaism reflects and gives its unique contribution to religious thought and to uh, and to modern society. So, uh, you know, I I never I never feel conflicted between these two. It's not difficult for me to take up the cause of we we we, we when the war broke out in uh, in Ukraine. Within three weeks. I organized a uh, special mission to uh, Poland. We went to the uh, Ukrainian border. I had 25 congregants who dropped everything, paid several thousand dollars, dropped whatever it is they were going to do three weeks from the time I announced it. You know, we, we spent a week bringing, we brought well over a ton of supplies, and we met with refugees. We We had all kinds of social justice activities when we returned. It was never, it's never, it, it comes naturally. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a Jew, to care about, in particular, to care about underprivileged, the vulnerable, the weak, the victims. What, what I've noticed, however, is it's harder for American Jews to feel that same type of passion uh, for fellow Jews. That's the part that liberal Jews need to be constantly on guard over, and we constantly need to remind uh, our movement and our rabbis and our congregants both need to take place at the same time. And for me, and I do concede and, and, and acknowledge that I have a different background than almost all of the other American Reform rabbis, and certainly of uh, most of the uh, hundreds of thousands of members of uh, reform congregations, uh, as I mentioned before, I, the, my is the Israeli side of my personality is is instilled in me in an inseverable way. It's 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 who I am. Yeah. It's as natural to me as breathing. So I concede, and so is the American part of my uh, identity. So you know, I, I I I do recognize that I have a different background, and it might be easier for me, but. It is imperative. It's imperative because if we lose the universal part of Judaism, we've lost the the purpose of the selection of the Jewish people. As the Bible says to Abraham, do what is just and right. If we lose the particularist part of the Jewish people, then uh, we're just universalists. And I think that that idea of holding on to our particularity in some ways sometimes rubs people the wrong way because they wonder if it's chauvinist or if it's racist or if it's elitist to sort of privilege your own. But one of the things that I always do with my confirmation class is I bring them for the first session to my house for our first class. And I bring them to my home because I want them to know how much I care for them. I want those kids to feel like family to me. And I care about them like that. Uh, but I'm not paying for them to go to college. And I'm not providing health care for them. 
and I'm not taking them on vacation. As much as I love them, and I really do love them, I prefer my kids and my family. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there is a natural extension of, you know, just as I prefer my family, nothing against your family, Ami. I love your family, but that's your family. I prefer my people to other people, right? When I watch the Olympics, I'm sure the athletes for the Netherlands or for Mozambique or whatever the other teams are, I'm sure they're lovely people. I'm rooting for Israel. I'm rooting for America. I'm rooting for my team, right? And I think that there's nothing wrong. In fact, I think that there is a moral obligation in many ways to celebrate one's own particularity and to show a sense of pride in that particularity, while at the same time, as you say, not surrendering your commitments to building up the vulnerable and the needy and in trying to create that sort of messianic image of a world that is healed and repaired. You see, Dan, that's why I love you, and that's why your congregants are among the most fortunate Jews in America. Checks in the mail, uh, Ami. What can I tell you? (laughs) But I I guess one of the questions I would ask you is, you know, how do you—you grew up in Israel. You had those formative seven years of plenty, as you've described, where you literally put your life on the line for the Jewish state. How do you communicate that kind of love for Israel— at the same time that we're watching things happen in the Israeli news in the last six months that make us, I think, all have a collective oigavolt. And when you have things that have happened over time where a particular Israeli administration may have made some decisions, policy decisions, that we would find to be morally noxious— How do you create that love of Israel, that passionate Zionism, for people who didn't get to have the kinds of experiences that you had? Yeah, well, so it's hard. It's obviously hard, right? Uh, You and I both are uh, exposed to uh, lots of uh, people and lots of American Jews and especially uh, younger American Jews uh, for whom that's uh, very challenging. I, I should say, as uh, I'm, I'm not conflicted about that either, as uh, there have been American administrations that uh, have appalled me. There have also been Israeli politicians who have and do now appall me, and that does not bear on my commitment to basic principles and concepts, my uh, Zionist uh, principles and commitments, or my uh, American nationalism. To the contrary, by the way, I think it's a sign of patriotism and a an important component of democracy to uh, oppose and protest those who do not reflect and represent not only your values, but what you consider to be the nation's values. I do want to put on record that there are elements of this current Israeli government that are completely appalling. I Personally, nor do I think any of our rabbis should sanitize ultra-nationalists and religious fundamentalists. Uh, We need to state very clearly that they do not represent our values, and we believe them to be out of the mainstream of Jewish and Zionist uh, values. Now, that said, then where where does that leave us? After all, and I want to also be clear about this, 
they were fairly and freely elected. There's nobody in Israel, unlike in the United States, who challenged the results of the elections. Everybody accepted the fairness of the elections. And Israelis voted at a much higher percentage than Americans regularly vote. So the elections were fair and square. And so where does that where, where does that leave us? I think it leaves us with, first of all, we cannot walk away and we cannot countenance any walking away by parts of the Jewish community. So so then that leaves us with doubling down, I think. It, we have to double down on for supporting forces in Israel, including our own movement, who do reflect and represent our values. If you look at the polls and you know Israeli society well, as, as you do, Dan, it, it's clear that the that the large majority of Israelis are equally appalled by elements of these government of this government. What's been happening in Israel over the last 17 weeks is testament to that. We just have to we have to continue to bring our people to Israel. In a sense, then it's it's the ultimate test of leadership for us. Because if Israel, you know, if everything if Israel was ideal, which no country ever is, because countries are are the are are, are the accumulation of uh, human beings, and human beings are flawed and fallible. But even if it was uh, a, a model society, which is our aspiration, you know, there would still be uh, plenty of uh, things to uh, improve upon, and Israel would still have plenty of opponents. But now, especially now, this is our test. It's a te- it's a real test of leadership. Can we maintain at the same time? Opposition to those who we believe do not reflect Jewish and Zionist values, who are now empowered in the government, while at the same time remaining committed to Zionism and doing our part, as we see our part, in bringing about better government and uh, and better circumstances. And, And I think that what's amazing and inspiring to me as someone who is a passionate Zionist and a passionate Reformed Jew is how much of the values that animate me through our tradition call out from Israel's Declaration of Independence, which is the document that you see being championed and celebrated by hundreds of thousands of people who pour into the street every Saturday night in protest over the last many weeks. You know, there's the famous passage in Israel's Declaration of Independence that says the state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education and culture. It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, and it will be faithful to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. You know, I don't know that there is anybody who is a champion of the work of the reform movement in its social justice capacities that doesn't get choked up by that language that comes from Israel's Declaration of Independence. And I think that part of what we can do as reform Jews in building a stronger Zionist commitment among Reformed Jews is to remind Reformed Jews that the bedrock principles and the aspirational dreams of the founders of the State of Israel were essentially our dreams. 
Totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. And 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 we just have to remember and bear in mind, Israel's still a young country. It's only seventy five years old. It never resolved its conflicting constitutional pressures for lots of reasons, but primarily because uh, it was attacked from the first day of its existence. And so it just takes time to work out these these uh, principles and to live up to these principles. Look, America is 200 and some odd uh, years old, and we are debating every day now about the democratic structure of American society and the threats to American democracy. So what we know is that you know democracy doesn't come free it's a it's an exercise that needs to involve an, an active citizenry that is working constantly to strengthen and develop the uh, concepts of freedom liberty and uh, equality and egalitarianism and all of the western concepts that we are so uh, committed to and and there's always backsliding there it, there it, every single day democracies are uh, tested we fought for God's sake, we we fought a civil war in this country. It, it is a serious situation in Israel. I, by my nature, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the Jewish people. I'm optimistic about Israel's future. This is a very serious moment, and it looks like uh, the worst has already been thwarted because of the complete commitment of so many millions of Israelis who are taking to the streets and protesting. Every day and every week, it's the most, it's the most inspiring thing. I, I, I myself wanted to go to Israel and just be with the people uh, on one of those Saturday night marches in Tel Aviv. We had the mayor of Tel Aviv here uh, last week speaking to our congregation, and and I told him, that, you know, if anybody wants to uh, invite me to come and you know be with the marchers in uh, Tel Aviv, I'm on a plane tomorrow because they're the most inspirational people the most inspirational Israelis, and they've already thwarted the worst of these these uh, judicial uh, judicial initiatives. So, Ami, for the last uh, many months, you have led an effort to create a meeting which will be held at the end of May and the beginning of June called Recharging Reform Judaism. And you wrote, in this historic moment of unprecedented change, the future of North American Reform Judaism hangs in the balance. Built upon the pillars of God, Torah, and Israel, that foundation today faces growing challenges. But with challenge comes opportunity. And I was blessed to join you in helping to design this conference. And what I'd like to ask you is, what was it that drove you to want to create this initiative to, as you say, recharge Reform Judaism? First of all, I, uh, thank you for uh, all of the help that uh, you've given, your support. I'm looking forward very much to your uh, presentation at the conference. Uh, it'll make a substantial difference. What I was worried about, and uh, what I think many of us were worried about, was uh, losing the soul of the reform movement, uh, that uh, these two principles, the blend of universalism and particularism, was uh, being lost. And uh, we wanted to make sure to state with clarity and conviction what uh, those of us who wanted to convene together believed. The conference is devoted to three basic urgencies that are affecting the North American reform movement. First of all, the fraying of the commitment to the centrality of Jewish peoplehood. 
and the increasing distancing between North American liberal Jews and Israel. Second, rediscovering the optimal balance between universal values and Jewish particularism, what we spoke about before, tikkun olam and klal Yisrael. And the third, and it's a really important uh, function and urgency that we have here in, in North America, is refreshing our religious commitments in an increasingly post-religious century. That is, how to develop the ideas, the vocabulary, and ritual practices that will kindle the really profound spiritual yearnings of every human being and inspire the millions in the Jewish community who are spiritually adrift to come back to us. So those are the three basic urgencies. We thought when we started this conference, and you remember, you were there from the beginning, that when we started planning, we thought that if 50 colleagues and key uh, lay supporters uh, would convene at one place and one time, that would be a significant success. We now have close to 300 registrants, 200 or so uh, reformed Jewish professionals, many lay leaders who are also interested not only in in these in the discussions, but also interested in supporting us, those who believe in what we believe. And so uh, I think we have an opportunity here to recharge, reinvigorate, refresh uh, the reform movement and put us on a better, more secure path uh, in the 21st century. I was listening to um, a discussion uh, with Brett Stevens and Rabbi David Wolpe, uh, and he quotes Cynthia Ozick as talking about how if you try to sound a shofar through the fat end through into the narrow end, you don't get any sound. It's only when you start at that narrow end and press your lips there that you can create a sound that resonates so strongly out the fat end. And the metaphor to me was so profound that you can start with your particularism and use that particular voice to answer the universal questions that we need to address as humanity, as is spoken directly to us through the particular texts and traditions that have evolved as part of Judaism over the centuries. But if you start the other way, and you start with universality and then try to blend it into a particularism, you don't really get very much. And I was thinking about how we are trying very hard to speak to a universalist-minded people and try to convince them that there is a particularity that addresses their universalist concerns. And I'm wondering sort of how we reverse that so that we can help the members of our movement to feel moved to start with the particularity and from that particularity feel moved, inspired, and catalyzed to want to make their contributions from that grounded particularity in the universal commitments that we, we share. Yeah, no, listen, I, I, I agree. It's a big uh, challenge, and I agree. There's, you know, there, we, can, we can understand why that occurs. First of all, we're infused with liberal values. Liberalism upholds Enlightenment Western values uh, that we're familiar with, tolerance, respect, decency, dignity, human freedom, liberty, equality. 
So, you know, that's, that's the environment with, from which we're raised, and we raise our children in that environment as well. And so it's more difficult for us to appreciate the Jewish collectivity when, you know, when we're not living in, like in Israel, in a Jewish state where we're speaking Hebrew as our native tongue, where every child, when they go to school, they study Bible and Jewish texts and so on. So, of course, by the way, it's harder for Israelis to appreciate the role of the Jewish people to be a light unto the nations than uh, it is for us because of the unique setting uh, where uh, they are. Although, throughout my travels across the world and helping refugees, and, uh, helping the unfortunate, I, I meet Israelis everywhere. It's, it's the most astonishing thing. They just drop everything. I met, I met uh, a number of Israeli humanitarian agencies in Lesbos, Greek, Greece, during the height of that refugee crisis uh, in Europe. And they were the ones, not, not exclusively, there were others as well from all over the world who just waded out into the ocean there, into the channel between Turkey and Greece, and literally saved people from uh, drowning to death. So I do, I do appreciate, you know, the unique circumstances that we uh, live in in the United States, and, and it's a glorious community that we established. Look at the magnificence of the American Jewish community. It's, there's never been a diaspora community so successful, so numerous, so accomplished, so caring, so accepted as the American Jewish community of the 20th and 21st century. So uh, I appreciate uh, the challenges. I also appreciate the, the glory and the magnificence of the American Jewish community. We have to try and preserve both. And I think that if we're able to preserve both and to build a rich, thick, passionate expression of our own particular culture, we lead to those uh, expressions of what makes our sacred mission as a nation worthy of our loyalty and fidelity. You know, I'm, I'm mindful that our tradition teaches that God deliberately wanted to create a particular nation that would promulgate these universal truths, but that it was through the mouthpiece of a particular nation that Isaiah said would be a light to the nations where those truths would be expounded, that God did not say, I want one family of humanity. It said, I want one people in covenant with me who will lead this uh, life as a mamlechet koanim, as a, as a kingdom of priests, to help me transmit this message. And I'm, I'm thoughtful of something I read that was uh, written by Yuli Tamir, former Knesset member and scholar who wrote, National Consciousness and collective memory form a cognitive map that helps us define who we are, where we are, and where we are heading. Without it, we are lost. And I think that sense of who I am, that grounded identity, is really what I think will help us build a stronger sense of where our mission is, as opposed to the mission for mission's sake. Yeah, that's very beautiful, uh, Dan. What we, we, we just need to, uh, we, we need to remember, bear in mind at all times, and remind all of us that the prophetic tradition is grounded, rooted in Jewish particularism. None of the great universal sentiments of the prophets make any sense without understanding that they were of the people, for the people, and by the people. So the, the, the great uh, statement, for example, 
of Amos. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream that Martin Luther King used to quote in dozens of his speeches. We can't simply quote that because that expresses universalistic principles, of course, that we resonate with without remembering that Amos ends his book by saying, and I will restore my people Israel. They shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and till their soil, and I will plant them on their own soil, never more to be uprooted from the soil I have given them. So the, so the, the effort to try and make the prophets universalists that weren't rooted in the experience of the Jewish people is to distort the prophetic tradition. So uh, I'm really grateful, Ami, for you being with us. I encourage all of our listeners to grab a copy of your new book, The Lilac Tree, in which they'll have an opportunity to learn from you on various essays you've written uh, on the Jewish condition today. I would ask you as we conclude, Ami, what is the essential question you're asking yourself these days? Well, um, my main concern, which has been my concern for really from the beginning of my uh, career, is to sustain Jewish continuity. Are we going to be able to sustain this magnificent American Jewish uh, community? Can we raise generations of young people who so care about Judaism and have such a strong Jewish identity that they will want to and will, in fact, transmit that to their posterity. That, to me, seems to be the, the central challenge of the American uh, Jewish community at this point in time. And I know that you've devoted your career to building that next generation and generations after that. Rabbi Ami Hirsch, it's such a privilege to spend this time with you. Thank you so very, very much. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. Mm-hmm.